Hello, I'm Ben Eshmead and welcome to another edition of the Academy of St Martin in the Fields podcast. Over the next two episodes, we'll take an in-depth look at all five of Beethoven's piano concertos with one of the greatest pianists of our age, Murray Pariah. I always feel that there's a lot of ways of playing masterpieces. There's not one way. I mean, I go through it in my life playing a piece many, many different ways. Journalist Helen Wallace joined Murray at his home to discuss these game-changing works in the piano repertoire. I wanted to start with a quote from Carl Cherney, Beethoven's pupil, about the way that he played. And Cherney said, it did not possess the pure and brilliant elegance found among many other pianists, but it was sparkling, grand, and especially in the adagios, highly emotional and romantic. Just like his compositions, his playing was a tone painting of the highest order, calculated solely in view of the overall effect. First, I want to address that quote. I I find it very moving. Somehow, that a composer who has something to say plays very differently than a virtuoso. That something is much more direct to the listener and from the heart, really. Um, So it's a very moving quote. Well, I was thinking as someone who encounters Mozart, the pianist improviser, as you obviously have done many times, and then you encounter Beethoven. What is that specific character? It's amazing. Uh, Each one is very different than the other, and yet you feel from their music, like you say, that they're improvisers. With Beethoven, it directly speaks to the emotions. Not that Mozart doesn't, but Mozart grew out of opera buffa, a new kind of comedy in opera. And opera really was, you know, his major one of his major contributions, besides the piano, of course. And I think that on the surface, Mozart comes from that world. Of course, he goes very much deeper into that world in a subtle way. But Beethoven improvisations are not known through their subtlety. They're known through just somehow getting to the basis of the emotions and digging around in there, so to speak. I think it takes a lot of courage to play his music. You have to go very deep in yourself and you have to be not afraid of expressing that. Do do you feel that when you're playing them, that they are parts that are being conceived in in the moment? I feel all through Beethoven there is that improvisatory feeling. He goes off in a fantasy world sometimes, far away from the main key, and this is a way of improvising. But I also feel that, and this is the contradiction, that every note is integral to the piece. It can't be another note. And therefore, it's very highly cohesive, every every piece of Beethoven. And that's the miracle of it. It's at the same time that it's improvisatory and has an improvisatory and very free feel to it, it's at the same time very totally organized. One of the things about him playing these was that the five concertos go from the moment where he is the king of the Viennese stage and then it goes through a crisis after the third, realizes he's this is not going to be his future. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that that's the right path to approach them in terms of his personal life, in that they're bigger than his personal life, and they chart an artistic growth, uh, a deep artistic growth, which was fully realised in the fourth and the fifth concerto. And the irony about that is that in those two concertos, he's closer to the spirit of Mozart than he is in the early concertos, which sound a little bit more like Mozart. Uh, That sense of freedom, 
that Mozart has. You never know what's going to come next in a Mozart piano concerto. It's always a surprise, and it's always so unusual. Nobody had ever thought of that before, how one mood follows the other. They're very unusual. The same thing happens with Beethoven. I mean, look at the beginning of the fourth concerto. The piano starts. Who would have thought that? The way it goes into very strange keys, the turbulent middle section, unanticipated by anybody, completely new and revolutionary, the way Mozart's concertos were. What's interesting is that every slow movement has a unique sound, which isn't like any other slow movement. Slow movement of the first concerto, which is sort of more open in A-flat major, um, to the, I don't know, very veiled, and somewhat sounding like an organ uh, with a certain stop to it in the third concerto, where he uses the flutes a lot. Uh, the solos with the winds at the end of the um, Emperor Concerto slow movement, and the slow movement of the fourth concerto, which has only strings, very different than the piano, and much more forceful, much more angular. People say it evokes the spirits of Hades and Orpheus trying to get back Eurydice. But each slow movement is is an original sound world. whether we can now turn to individual concertos. So the second concerto was the one he actually started first, um, begun in 1790. He said of it, I do not claim it to be one of my best. I find it still, nevertheless, despite Beethoven's comments, uh, a great piece. It's full of an energy. It's Mozartanian in concept. I mean, you have the feeling that he's following Mozart's concertos. For instance, he starts with a piano episode that doesn't deal with the theme. Interesting, by the way, um, his cadenza, which was written much, much later, came at the time of the Hammerklavier, is uh, (laughs) totally out of the style of that concerto, but it's just a great piece. It's a fugue of some kind. The last movement is so buoyant and so much fun, it actually elicits laughter sometimes from the audience. I was going to um, talk about that cadenza, actually, because there is the, the Bachian fugue here, and he uses fugue in an interesting way. His sense of fugue, you know, maybe was influenced by Bach, but it's gone so far from Bach. It's so much more dramatic than Bach is, and it's more unusual in a way. It's so daring. And then the end of the cadenza is also very strange, goes into a kind of diminished chord with a dominant as a bass and then out of that a scale brings it back to the concerto itself it's very very unusual in a way that Bach would never have been but he was fascinated Beethoven was fascinated with counterpoint and I think all his pieces reflect his study of counterpoint not just the fugal ones everything and one of the things that really struck me listening to the second concerto again is that the adagio has 
real depth. It has that wonderful hymn-like quality. This kind of hymn-like, as you say, theme, which is elaborated in beautiful variations, comes back later, is particular to Beethoven. It's a religious quality almost. And Beethoven, I think, in the deepest sense, was a religious person. I think people forget that. Because he embraced the Enlightenment, but the Enlightenment was part of his example um, the the growing up scientific experiments and all of these things was his example that God is amazing, that God, the amazing things that go on in this universe, uh, discoveries in the science that they were doing. We know from Beethoven's annotations in various theological books that this was a means of him to to celebrate God's manifold powers. One of the particular striking aspects of that second concerto is the way the slow movement ends. It's a kind of recitative. Wants to say something and it keeps breaking down. And ta-tiro, ta-tiro, ta-tiro. And somehow the orchestra finishes the phrase for the soloist. It's very touching. And then it suddenly goes into this carefree last movement, which proves Beethoven's wonderful sense of humor. Always with humor, a little bit rough, maybe with that dance, but uh, nevertheless, a really earthy sense of humor. And that's got sort of a scotch snap. How do you decide on a speed for those fast movements? I mean, they're all dance-like, they're all so buoyant, and yet they can't be rushed, can they? Uh, that's right. For Beethoven also, to find the speed is is very uh, difficult because I have a feeling, and I might be wrong, that he, especially in the later works, changes tempos and doesn't keep the same tempo. For instance, for the, um, the Emperor Concerto, I think in the first movement, needs some tempo change. And, you know, when things get more excited, you either go forward or sometimes you hold back. Tempo is a relative thing uh, to what's happening in the music. But to catch the right tempos is sometimes difficult. Here we're helped a lot by Czerny, who studied all of these pieces with uh, Beethoven and marked down in the metronome. I still think that one has to use one's personality to judge the tempos, uh, because they have to fit into your artistic capabilities. Uh, if I just played the written tempo that Czerny says without putting myself into it, it becomes mechanical. And so I can't afford to do that. Mm-hmm. 
thank you. Well, can we move on to the, the first? It always astonishes me with the first concerto that it was played in one of those enormous concerts that had so much music in it. These programmes were unlike any programmes today. Like you said, they took about three hours or four hours. They went on. People talked sometimes during the middle. Uh, They went, uh, they left the room, maybe like jazz concerts today. A kind of informal thing. I mean, after all, the the violin concerto was premiered by a violinist that liked to play upside down. So... (laughs) I don't know, all kinds of crazy things. that, And they took long breaks, for instance, between the first movement and the second movement, maybe a coffee break or something like that, and then came back to it at different times. And so it's very hard to imagine these programs with today's mentality and what our concerts are like. But yes, they, they were... The same is true with the fourth concerto, which was premiered at a concert where, I don't know, uh, everything in, plus the kitchen sink was uh, in, in that concert. Would you agree that Beethoven is still wearing an 18th century wig at, at the beginning of this? I mean, he, he does that thing we were talking about again where a theme is announced but the pianist doesn't quite play it. That was a tradition that Mozart started, exactly. The piano had its own theme. Uh, and so, yes, that's true in this. By the way, finding the tempo for this is also a very difficult process and every time I play it, I choose something different. So I'm not quite sure... Uh, in the end, because if one plays it very fast, which is a tendency, and um, it, it has a good reason, it's exciting, but then one has to slow down for the whole development section because that's much more lyrical and can't be played that fast. It goes into these very strange harmonies. So it's difficult to find. One of my teachers, uh, Mieczysław Horshavsky, he studied with a pupil of Czerny's. He studied with Leszczycki. And he claimed that Leszczycki told him that according to Czerny, Beethoven played this rather slowly, the first moment. I've never found that completely convincing, but I'm going to try it maybe at some point um, so that it wasn't, it didn't make any tempo changes. mentioned that wonderful development section and those modulations where we're moving into sort of C minor and E flat and I just wondered whether you could talk about some of those inspired passages. This is 
beautiful and it's very imaginative. It's far away. I think that's the main point, that it's far away. And then when the main key through its dominant comes, he has glissando octaves, which are written, I think, fortissimo. And they bring back the concerto like in a jolt. I'm telling uh, the people, I, I took you to dreams, but now back to reality. feel that there's a lot of ways of playing masterpieces. There's not one way. I mean, I go through it in my life playing a piece many, many different ways. And I think if one captures the essence, what one feels is the essence of the, let's say, the moods, the harmonies, the counterpoints, the way that they're moving, then I think a lot of ways are possible. So it's a little bit of both. If, if I can see it, if I can see that it has a reason, then I'll let it go. Otherwise, I'll try to shape it perhaps the way I feel it at that moment. And then we come to the, the rondo. There's an interesting story which is related, I think, in the Kulak edition, which quotes Czerny. I think actually Czerny wrote it in his memoirs that Beethoven played that phrase in a particular way. If you are to sing it, you would sing dum di da dum bum bum di da dum bum. But that's not how Beethoven played it. He played da da bop 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 da bop bop bop, connecting the two notes in the middle uh, to each other. And it reminded me that when Beethoven died, they questioned his maid as to how he played. Because Beethoven had this way of sort of awkwardly going through things, but it was with a method. He wanted to show the appoggiatura. They asked the maid, how did Beethoven play? And she said, well, he played the way I dusted. He said, if I would dust the keys in a certain way, that's how he sounded. And I think that's probably very true. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's move on to the C minor, uh, the third concerto. I was so much reminded of the fact that he'd written the Pathétique Sonata before this. I think that the, the special feeling of C minor already comes in Mozart. You have already terror in the uh, C minor concerto of Mozart in the beginning. Uh, it's so strange. And you find Beethoven trying to explore this strange this key that brings up almost a madness. It's interesting, the last movement is a release from, from the, the torture of the first movement. I think like many last movements, they weren't played so quickly. It was um, very often, as I said, a release. So it was not another fast tempo. It was a kind of, we've been through the concerto, now we're sort of finishing Let's relax, and th therefore I don't take it quite as fast as, let's say, if, if it was a fast movement. 
I mean, I feel there's a very folk-like quality to that last movement with its, its sort of insistent, repeated notes. Yeah, I find the tenderness, strangely. So, um, I don't know. One can, I guess, interpret it in many different ways. And of course, the kettle drum is terribly important, important in this one because it was his initial idea that he would have this rhythm with the with the pianist in the cadenza. The end of the cadenza comes and the timpani plays all alone. There's no other in- instruments. Maybe the strings are accompanied. Bum, 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 bum. That was Beethoven's original idea. That was the thing that inspired him. And maybe he comes close to that in the uh, D major the violin concerto, in his own cadenza for it, which is a duo between the timpani and the piano that inspired Beethoven to write that cadenza in the piano version of the violin concerto. I mean, of course, there's an enormous unity in this particular concerto, isn't there, with the idea of the kettle drum, da-dum, da-dum, and then that following all the way through the whole concerto. It has great cohesion, doesn't it? I think that was Beethoven's aim throughout, was to conceive the whole piece as one cohesive statement. And you see that in the sonatas, you see that in everything, in everything he wrote. And E major... This is our key for the for the um, Largo. I'm reminded of the consolation and in the Sonata Number no. Thirty, Opus One Hundred Nine, the the E Major Sonata. Extreme sense of consolation. It it seems to be very connected with that key. He advises that one holds the pedal quite a lot in the beginning in the beginning statement of the the piano, and so I always find that when you hold the pedal a lot. It gets the feeling from far away. It's uh, because all the harmonies get shrouded. It's not clear. And this feeling of far away, for instance, he does that in the beginning of the Moonlight Sonata. He asks for the pedal not to be lifted very much, although you have to at some points, I think, for harmonic reasons. But anyway, that is also to convey the feeling of another planet almost, uh, another sphere. And there's beautiful writing, particularly for flute and bassoon. The piano is accompanying basically those two instruments. And you need a real vibrancy in the bass strings there. How do you make sure that you have that? Well, you rely on their musicality, and they usually provide it. The orchestra is is wonderful, the academy. Uh, And it's wonderful. It's very uh, exciting. ¶¶ 
I'm Ben Eshmade, and you've been listening to an Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast. That's about all we have time for, but join us again next time as we continue the discussion with Beethoven's Piano Concertos No. 4 and the Mighty Emperor Concerto No. 5. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard, so please do get in touch via our official Facebook page or on Twitter at ASMF Orchestra using the hashtag ASMF Podcast. You can hear Murray Pariah and the Academy of St Martin in the Fields performing Beethoven's Piano Concertos in Pariah Plays Beethoven at London's Barbican during the 2016-17 season. If you wish to book tickets for these concerts, find out more about the Academy or support our work by joining the Academy Friends, please visit asmf.org. Thanks for listening.